Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're up to over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so Cascade Components is best known for making aftermarket suspension links for a whole range of different bikes to change their kinematics, and there's a lot of interesting design decisions that go into those. And so I sat down with their design engineer, Jimmy Davis, to talk about their overall philosophy for designing suspension links, what they're hoping to change about most of the bikes that they make links for, and why, if it's possible to improve the kinematics of a given bike, they don't come that way from the factory. And that gets us into a really good conversation about just the extent to which suspension design is a series of trade-offs that are being made rather than an area where there's a clear black and white better and worse decision to be made. And so we get into it about who Cascade's links are and aren't for and who they will be of most benefit to. And then after that, we also chat a bit about their other products, including the really excellent chain guide that I tested earlier this year and their aftermarket brake calipers for SRAM code brakes, which I have just started reviewing and am awfully impressed with so far. There's a lot of cool information about bike design and a whole lot more in this episode, so let's get right to my chat with Jimmy. Well, Jimmy, thanks for coming on. Great to chat with you. How are you today and where are you today? Uh, doing pretty good up at the uh, the shop in Everett, Washington, um, just south end of Everett, European field. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk a little more about this when we get into the breaks portion of the chat here. But I was up just a few weeks ago checking the place out and pretty cool program you guys are writing. So for people who aren't super familiar, Cascade kind of first made its foray into the bike world, making aftermarket links for a bunch of old suspension bikes to alter suspension kinematics then we'll we'll go more in depth on those in a few here but to start it off just tell us a little bit about the company and how you guys got into the bike world because i understand you've been working in a few different industries for a bit and the bike expansion as cascade components is something of a newer project for you guys so take us through all that so i i started out after i graduated college um graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering uh did some aerospace related stuff um, ended up at, at, uh, this company that I'm at now, which is, uh, it, it's, I, so I guess to preface that, uh, Cascade Components is part of kind of like a large, larger company that contains like three separate, um, arms that kind of operate on their own. So, so there's Clearworks, which is like contracted engineering design, Dive Extras, which does dive gear, specifically scooters. Um, and then there is Cascade Components. Uh, which is the biking stuff, obviously. Um, so, so I, I got into it on the Claraworks end. Um, it was about six and a half years ago. Um, and a lot, a lot of the people at the company, like a lot of the engineers here, have been doing aerospace and whatnot for for a while. And that's kind of how Claraworks um, kicked off. Uh, so, so yeah, then. Uh, we kind of ended up in the bike industry, not, not necessarily on accident, but it, it, we, we didn't go, Oh, Hey, we are going to start making bike components. Um, what actually had happened is, uh, this was what, three, three years ago. Um, I was riding a, a trail, um, trail. It's not on the map. Uh, we'll call it the Duthie backcountry. 
any, anyway, so I was, I was riding the Duthie backcountry, came out of a berm a little bit hot. Uh, it's one of those ones you kind of pop out of and realized that I was not um, lined up with the trail, uh, rear triangle on my Nomad kind of, uh, instead of tire tapping, I rear triangle tapped a, uh, a stump. Um, so that, that was quite the crash. And then, uh, realized after, after that, that the uh, stump actually broke in my rear triangle. Um, so I was hiking the bike out back to the, uh, back to the car and just was thinking about suspension and the, specifically the flip chip that that bike uses. And I was wondering if you have a flip chip, that's, you know, if, if you have a high position and a low position, if you had the bottom out be where the wheel is and low bottomed out and at the top of travel be where it is at top of travel and high, then like that's, that's more, there's range of motion that the bike was designed to have that, that the uh, shock isn't actually using. Um, so then I just like started thinking about putting longer shocks on it, did some numbers, found that there was a little bit of regression at the end of the leverage curve um, for the Nomad. And then since I was waiting for a replacement rear triangle, just decided I was going to do a machining project um, just on, on the side and made a link for the bike. Um, and then you know, I originally actually, I didn't, didn't think it was going to be as wild as it was. Um, to date, the Nomad is, I think it's the only one. Well, no, it, it is the only one. We, we've only, we only ever made one version of the Nomad link because the first one was actually so good. Um, when I got the rear triangle back and got the whole thing assembled and like went and rode it, you know, versus the stock one, the first time I rode the thing, I was like, oh my God, this thing is insane. Um, and then, you know, I was just riding that thing around and there were some, you know, some people and some shops that were like, oh, that's, like, that's kind of cool that like you can make a link that, you know, lets you tweak these things. You know, I, I know some people or, you know, I, I might be interested in one. And um, so then since, you know, our shop here already has all the machines and whatnot that we've been using for other projects for, you know, years, uh, we just were like, okay, we're going to run a small batch of Nomad links. Um, those things sold better than we expected. Um, so then we, you know, moved on to the next one. We did a Bronson link and it just kind of just kept picking up um, into what it is now. Yeah. I love kind of, like you said, not exactly accidental, but just sort of backed into it. And once you started going, realized there was more interest and more momentum behind it than you maybe anticipated. And so from there, I mean, you, as you kind of started out, you did the Bronson next and you've expanded the range of bikes that you make aftermarket links for pretty significantly. But I guess to start with that first nomad link, tell us a little more specifically what you were attempting to accomplish with that one when you were just imagining the first design for yourself before this was even really meant to be a product that you were necessarily planning on selling a bunch of. Uh, so with the nomad, uh, just doing it, you know, for, and I guess this is actually really not much has changed with the design philosophy, doing it for, for, you know, my own bike, for my own intents and purposes. Uh, I, I was just trying to make it more progressive and get rid of like that little regressive bit at the bottom of travel. Um, I had always found like, I mean, the, like the bike it rode fantastic, but I did feel like it tended to stay deep in its travel um, more often than not, like, I'd be hitting my bottom bracket 
on things or my bash guard on things all the time. Um, even when like, I didn't really think I, I should be. Um, so it was just like, you know, the, the mid stroke support, uh, wasn't it, not to say it was lacking, but I wanted more of it beyond what, uh, volume spacers, you know, were, were getting me. Cause I'd been playing around with, you know, all manner of shocks packed full of volume spacers and adding damping. And I mean, adding damping, you know, helps to some extent, but then like, if you're already deep in travel, it's not position sensitive. So like it can only help you so much. Um, and then the, uh, the small bump sensitivity, that was, that was a minor thought for the first one. Um, but then do, doing that first nomad link, that's, I, that's what really made me realize like, whoa, you can actually do a lot for small bump sensitivity that I didn't, didn't really think you could. I mean, and it's, it's a sentiment that like, I, I think we actually, we see a lot like, oh, like this bike's, you know, pretty much perfect. You know, what, what could be done to, you know, make it any better? Well, I mean, like I, I thought the same thing about the small bump sensitivity. I was like, oh, this is, you know, that's really good. I'm just going to give it some more, you know, mid stroke support and make it harder to bottom out and we'll be good to go. And then the small bump just kind of blew my mind actually. <laughs> and so when you say you're going about improving small bump sensitivity, what more specifically are you changing to accomplish that in general, or maybe specifically on the nomad anyway? So I guess it's, it's almost like a, how, how can, how can I get the small bump sensitivity and the bottom out resistance and mid stroke support and all that to be more balanced, um, such that, uh, I'm not having to rely on, I guess th things like, you know, unreasonably heavy damping tunes or way too many spacers or whatnot to, to get what I'm looking for. So like one, one thing I've noticed with, you know, if you cram a bunch of volume spacers in a shock, um, because of how large your compression ratio is, you end up with really slow rebound speeds, um, at the top of travel compared to the bottom of travel, which leaves you in this tough spot where if you set up your bike so that it doesn't feel like a pogo stick deep in travel, the rebound, uh, which rebound actually surprisingly impacts small bump a fair bit. The rebound ends up being too slow at the top of travel. So the, the shock doesn't like really use that top of travel very well because it's not able to rebound like in, in that range really. So like you might have, you know, 10 millimeters of, of shock travel that like where the rebound speed is just way too slow. So it just packs up through that pretty much all the time. Yeah. I have encountered that running lots of volume spacers in certain shocks and on certain bikes in the past and sort of to maybe unpack that a little bit more for people who didn't hundred percent follow there. I, um, and correct me if I'm, misrepresenting any of this but basically what you're saying is that if you are running a ton of volume spacers in a rear shock an air sprung rear shock you basically the like the ratio between the starting and ending air volume in the positive spring uh is a really big ratio of starting to end volume and so the you've made the shock really stiff deep in the stroke relative to how stiff it is at the top and the kind of how the spring rate or how much how stiff the thing is spring wise is what is driving the shock on rebound and so you have the shock trying to rebound very quickly deep in the travel when the spring rate's really high and not doing that near top at once the spring rate's fallen off a whole bunch and so you just get kind of 
funky rebound behavior as a result of that. Is that about right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I guess one, one other little bit to add to, as far as spring rate goes is when you're, when you're making the, the bike more progressive, you're, so I, I like to call it like effective spring rate, the, the spring rate you're actually feeling at the wheel. Um, cause that's, that's what, you know, impacts the, the ride quality, right? You know, you're, you're not feeling how your shock moves in the frame. You're feeling how your wheel moves across the ground. Um, so when you, when you make it more progressive, uh, if you look at like the effective spring rate at the rear wheel, it actually, it gets lower and lower, um, towards top of travel without the spring, obviously the spring rate at the shock, you know, is, isn't changing, um, like that. So, so like you're, you're kind of, you're making the suspension softer and softer as it gets towards the top of travel past the sag point. And then, so once you compress it <laughs> past 30% sag, uh, your suspension is actually technically stiffer than it, than it is. Um, but like with the stock link, um, because you've kind of, you've crossed over that, that point, you know, where like suspension forces are, are balanced. I guess that would be the, maybe the easiest way to put it. <laughs> right. And so you can actually kind of improve mid-stroke support without making it overall stiffer, like through the entirety of the travel essentially. And, and so I guess to sort of go from there then, when you're like, I think that's a good rundown of kind of what you set out to do with that first Nomad Link. But then more generally, when you're considering a new bike that you're thinking about making a link for kind of what are you looking for in a bike that makes it a good candidate for an aftermarket link? And for the most part, are you kind of aiming for a similar set of changes that you're looking to make to most of the bikes that you're working on, or does the sort of target for what you're attempting to tweak vary pretty significantly based on the bike in question? Uh, so I'd say for the most part, we, we try and hit the, the same set of goals. Um, you know, just making, making frames more progressive for people that, you know, can benefit from that. Um, for each individual frame that there are some slight variations, um, as far as how we go about picking those frames, I mean, some of it's, you know, bikes, bikes around here, at least that people are riding a lot. Uh, it's easy to figure out, you know, what, what to do with something where like, you know, you know, a bunch of people that have the bike and, you know, you can talk to them all the time about it. You know, even if I haven't spent, you know, three years riding a, a Kona process, if I know someone who spent three years riding a Kona process and, you know, they want to help out with testing and, and whatnot, then like, you know, that, that makes it pretty easy. Um, we generally, we, we do try and pick bikes where, where like we feel we can make a pretty big improvement, at least a big improvement for people that, you know, are trying to ride the bike aggressively. Um, we're, we're well aware that, you know, making parts in Washington isn't inexpensive. Um, and you know, if, if, if a link doesn't perform well enough to justify its price tag, then we don't really want to make it. Um, there are like, there definitely are some frames out there where we're like, you know, I thought, Oh, it'd be kind of cool to make a link for that bike. Looked at the kinematics and it turns out there's not the clearance, um, or like the size of the link would just have to become obscene to, you know, get the changes that we want. And at that point we kind of go, okay, like this, isn't seeming especially feasible. Like we're not going to sell a link that's 2% more progressive because 
you know, that that does fall into the realm of like people aren't going to notice this. Yeah, no, that certainly makes sense. And I guess sort of more generally, what would you say kind of makes for a bike that has the potential to real for you to really make a notable change on it? Like, are there particular suspension layouts that are well suited to messing around with or is it stuff is it kind of more specific just down to packaging of like how much clearance there is to move points around or how would you kind of characterize that more generally um yeah there there certainly are layouts um that that are better suited towards tweaking things not necessarily better suited uh it's easier a lot easier to tweak them and not run into clearance things um I guess another thing is the bike has to have, you know, the geometry to get pushed harder. Um, you know, if, if we were to take a link on, you know, some like old bike that's really, really steep and short and, you know, where you can't ride it that hard, then we could make it have the wildest suspension and just, you know, geometry would be limiting. Um, back to what layouts um, are conducive to, to making links. Uh, I've, I've found pretty much anything with with small linkages, um, it's a lot easier to, to like get big changes, um, and a small amount of room. Uh, so like VPP, you know, you, you can change like one of the pivot dimensions by like a millimeter, um, sometimes even less than a millimeter fractions of a degree. And you, you wind up with some pretty big differences as far as kinematics go compared to like a horse link bike. Um, you know, you're, you're working in, in like the, you know, 10 millimeter, you know, range as far as, you know, dimension change goes, stuff like that. So, you know, like you, you can do it with a horse link, obviously, like we've done a lot of horse link stuff. Um, but the clearance does get a lot harder to balance. Um, you might realize that, the link that we really want to make completely gets rid of, you know, clearance between like seat stay brace and the seat tube um, versus, you know, something like the the Santa Cruz Nomad, which doesn't have a seat stay brace to begin with. Um, and, you know, you're, you're making these pretty small dimensional changes to links. That's really easy to, to, you know, juggle everything having designs where you don't have to move points by a huge amount in order to affect a significant change would make it easier to have the packaging kind of shake out. Okay. And so I guess along those lines, when what's the process look like then, if you have a bike that you are either well, you're considering or have decided, okay, we're going to go ahead and make a link for this. Where do you actually then start going through the design and figuring out what you want to do and how to get it made? Um, I mean, so the first thing we do, we, we just, we, you know, we measure the whole bike up, um, figure out what, what the dimension of each suspension member is, which, um, I mean, one, one thing I will say is like that there is some error built into that. Uh, some of that's just how accurate can we measure things? Some of that is, does the frame actually match, you know, the theoretical dimension of the frame? Um, I guess that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so so we get our, our dimensions based off the frame that we have um i i take some I, I have a whole bunch of equations for just about you know every suspension layout now that make it really really easy to 
to iterate um, leverage curves and geometry uh, without having to make anything. Um, a lot of I know a lot of people use that linkage software for everything. Um, I, I just find doing it this way. It's well, so one having built all the equations, it's really easy to you know have an understanding of like I, I know exactly what each variable will change as far as the output. Um, so it's it's not not a guessing game. Like, do I want to make you know the distance between this bearing and this bearing longer or not? Um, you know, I, I could tell you exactly why a certain link is more or less progressive than another one, just, you know, by looking at the, the dimensions. Um, so there, there's that. And then it's just like that it, it's really, really easy to enter very, very small values. So like when we're messing around with a Santa Cruz link where it's like, I'm going to change the angle between these two positions by 0.1 degrees, um, which is meaningful on a Santa Cruz link, you can just do that. Um, and then, yeah, it's just spits numbers out quickly, easy to bounce back and forth between different configurations. Um, I, I couldn't even count the number of different combinations I run through before we actually machine anything. I, I probably run through at least 25 different um, configurations of a link before modeling anything. When you say modeling, you mean starting to do 3D design work to actually come up with a CAD model, yeah. Yeah, starting to do a 3D model. So I, I probably do, yeah, like about like 20 or so, like 2D iterations before modeling anything solid. Um, and then for solid modeling, we generally just, we try and stick with the aesthetics that the bike has, um, regardless of whether or not we like the aesthetics. That, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, some bikes can grow on you over time, some don't, right? <laughs> so, so we always try and stick with the aesthetics, so at least, you know, blends in with what it's installed on um a good portion of the design too though is you know how do we design this in a way that is actually machinable um you see a lot of parts around where you know that necessarily hasn't been thought of and if we were to like we we could machine some you know weird part like that it's just not necessarily efficient and you know again back to making parts in washington for us to make things that are you know, we're actually able to sell, they have to run efficiently. Otherwise, you know, your link that we sell for $250 is a $500 link because the machine time is doubled. Um, so taking into account machining is a big part of it too. In line with what I would have expected probably. But, and I guess one thing I'd be curious to hear you, you talk a little bit more about is that um, something I've seen kind of in just comment sections and the like talking about new links as you're rolling them out and the rest is people being like oh well if you can just make a different link and make the kinematics better why didn't they just make them better from the first place from the factory from like the original company and uh yeah what's your response to that i think i think i have a guess but i'm curious to hear it yeah i mean the, the, so there's just such a huge range of of you know users right um so as a as a you know bike brand you're you're doing your job well and doing it correctly. If you come up with a link that, you know, is, is useful across the board, um, you know, whether that's a beginner, intermediate or advanced rider, you have to come up with a bike that is rideable and enjoyable to ride. Um, and, and then, you know, different locations across the world as well. Um, different rider weights, 
you know, all, all that. We kind of have the luxury of catering to a small market. Um, you know, we, uh, all of our links, I guess, are like they're designed generally around the riding in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, we don't have to take into account the, you know, upper percentile rider in terms of weight. Um, you know, we, we can just optimize links for people below, you know, like for example, our most recent, uh, Levo link, the one we did for the standard shock or the stock sock shock size, um, just because of leverage ratio that limits the rider weight to 200 pounds. Um, you know, specialized, they can't limit their rider weight to 200 pounds because they got to design it for everyone. Um, so there's, there's that. And then, you know, if, if you take a, a really progressive bike and give it to a rider that's not very aggressive, they're not going to be able to use full travel. Um, you know, and at, at that point, like if you have a 170 millimeter bike and you can only use 150 millimeters of it, that progression, like you're, you're not using it. Um, you know, you'd, you'd rather have 170 millimeters that you can use. So there's, I mean, there's that bit of it too, you know, just got to make it usable for everyone. This is something that we kind of have to think about a lot at Blister, certainly in the business of reviewing stuff too. It's not like there exists an objective best bike setup, whatever, you know, anything. There's not a single best thing for everybody. And so, you know, the business of reviewing these things is a matter of talking about the trade-offs that go into them. And it's the same deal if you're someone designing a bike, right? You're, it's not like any decision that you make is compromise-free in all circumstances for everybody across the board. And so you you have to pick a target and have something that'll work for a big spectrum of people. For some products, maybe there are some products out there that you can be a little more selective in saying, well, this is going to work. We're going to make something that works great for certain people doing certain things, but not for everybody. And what you said makes a ton of sense. It's like you're making products that'll change the suspension, that'll work better than the stock ones for certain kinds of riders doing certain stuff with the bike. And they're not necessarily meant to be universally better for every single person in the whole world. And that's fine. So yeah, that I like that answer a lot. Well, so to sort of take it to um, speaking of particularly aggressive, capable riders, uh, in addition to the various links that you've been making for stock bikes of late, saw that you guys are going to be partnering with Nico Malali on his sort of self-designed Frank the Welder built World Cup race bikes for this coming season. Tell us a little bit about how that partnership came about and what you're hoping to bring to the table for him on those bikes. Uh, yeah, so he, I mean, he pretty much just uh, hit us up out of the blue. Um, it wasn't something like I, I was expecting at all. Uh, and, and yeah, he was, he was like, hey, I'm, you know, working on this project for the upcoming season. Um, pretty much, you know, you, you guys make a lot of links. Um, and, you know, there, there are some things going on with, with like this bike that I, I think I need, you know, some help with. And, you know, would you guys be interested in, in helping out? Cause I mean, we make a lot of links. So, you know, that's kind of our, our deal. And the, I, I don't, I don't know how much he's, he's talked about it to any, 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how many details I should go into, but uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so that's kind of how that that came in, into being. Um, you know, just needing to to make a a beefy link that you know can hold up to a season of downhill racing at a high level. Yeah, in his uh, in depth video on the the bike, the first one he put out a few days ago, and we'll link to this in the show notes. He was mentioning that on the the first iteration of the links he was having problems bending and breaking the upper shock bolt and so um and then actually so the the first set of links he had had some pretty big cutouts in them and then he went back in and had some reinforcement plates welded into the inside of those just trying to stiffen the links up and hopefully put a little less load on the shock bolts yeah. but <laughs> doesn't sound like that got him all the way there either so um yeah, fair enough if you can't spill all the beans, but that uh, I think seems fair to say is one of the one of the goals that's, that he has put out into the world as being something that needed a little bit of work on those that first iteration. And um, we actually had him on Bikes and Big Ideas a few weeks ago. We'll link to that in the show notes too for people who want to check that one out. And that was a super fun chat. We went a whole lot deeper on the whole project and the bikes and what he's doing. But uh he did say pretty clearly in that, that he was kind of with that first iteration, he was just trying to make something that worked and was not putting a lot of effort into having it be super thoroughly refined and, you know, high quality finish and stuff for the first one. He was just trying to keep it simple. And his next version of the frame is, it's going to look a lot more, uh, Obviously, the first one looks real. It is real. Uh, it's going to look more like what people would expect, you know, an aluminum frame to look like. And also, yeah, I think the next iteration is going to be pretty sweet. And yeah, hopefully it'll it'll hold up to a, a whole season. I think it should. And that will the next one have your links on it? Stuff that you guys made? Yep. Yeah, that is is the plan. We're uh, we're actually machining those quite soon. Sweet. Well, yeah, looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. And uh, that's just been a, a super cool project all around. So very much looking forward to seeing how the season goes for him and cool that you guys got involved in that one. So to move on from the links a little bit here now, they've kind of been the product that you started with and are probably still best known for. But you've got a couple other things kind of, well, out there and I know some more stuff in the works. So Let's talk about the North Fork brakes next. You've got the set of aftermarket calipers that you can made up to a SRAM code lever and line. And uh, tell us about those and what the impetus for that project was. Yeah, that one started as another just, you know, what do I want to tweak on my bike? What what am I not, you know, getting right now that I, I feel like I should? Um, I, I, I know this is a big debate. So I'm not going to get into, you know, A versus B, but, uh, I've tried a whole bunch of different brakes on my bike. Um, pretty much settled the, on, you know, for me, the, the codes are kind of the best balance of everything. Um, however, I still, I, I just still wanted a little bit more power out of them. Um, so yeah, I just sat down and started designing a caliper that, you know, would, would deliver 20% more power. So the by 20% more power, I'm, I'm talking for a given brake line pressure. So like how hard you're squeezing the lever, um, the pressure or 
exerts 20% more force on the, uh, on the rotor than like with the stock brake. So that, you know, involved balancing out some, some other aspects to get the lever feel to be correct. Cause if you just make your brakes 20% more powerful, you also make them 20% more mushy. Um, obviously don't want that. So just had to, we had to do a lot of prototyping with seal geometry to balance out, you know, lever throw with the, you know, increased fluid volume. Yeah. We, we talked about that a whole bunch. I was up a few weeks ago to get a pair installed to test. And, um, yeah, it's kind of like you were saying the the math on the power is actually kind of straightforward because it's brakes at their core are just there to basically increase the leverage that your hand has squeezing the thing. And then obviously you got pads doing, applying that to the rotor and creating friction and slowing you down that way. But, um, you know, you, you make the pistons bigger and you effectively increase the mechanical advantage your hand has to squeeze the, squeeze the rotor, but also you doing, so you get more force, more applied to the rotor, but you also have to pull the lever farther to move the pistons far enough to work. Um, if you don't also tweak seal geometry. And so, um, I've been pretty impressed with those. They kind of do what they say on the tin, as it were, that there's clearly significantly more power and math checks out for it being 20%. But, uh, the lever feel, I was at kind of have been surprised at how similar to stock it is, despite the changes to the power and the, the leverage that you get out of them. So how kind of, how have you gone about balancing those out? What was the plan there? Pretty much what that boiled down to is the stock codes have an absolutely massive amount of piston retract, um, which that's actually another thing that like, worked out in in favor for me. Uh, I have always felt like they have too much piston retract and I have to br- squeeze the brake lever too far before they actually start braking. Um, so piston retract got decreased by you know, on, on paper, the number is 0.1 millimeters per side. Um, so it's, it's not a huge number, but, uh, it's, it's, it's enough to, to do the, the trick as far as, you know, lever feel and whatnot goes. Yeah. Um, I would say it's worked too. I mean, I don't have a huge amount of time on them yet. I only got them a few weeks ago, but, uh, certainly power's great. Lever feel is really good similar to stock, even maybe a tiny bit shorter feeling throw on them and, uh, been, been pretty psyched about that. And so again, like kind of the rest of your deal there, um, guys are making them there in Everett. One of the things I thought was really neat about those that you mentioned too, is that the, um, seals and pistons are actually still normal SRAM parts or could be used as normal SRAM parts because they're, the code stock has two different size pistons in it. You take the bigger one of the two, make it the smaller of the pistons in the your caliper, and then add the a bigger one yet, which comes from or is the same size as uh, was it their two piston road brakes? If I have it right, and so kind of a neat trick to get some bigger pistons and more power in there without kind of having to go too crazy and have weird custom parts that aren't replaceable and available widely. So, uh, 
pretty clever product and been really impressed with them so far. That whole interchangeability thing, actually, that was that was another uh, kind of big big part of the the initial design is one of the other things that I had found writing a whole bunch of different breaks is there are some where if you need replacement parts, they are pretty hard to find. You can't just walk into a shop because you've done something to your brake and go, oh, hey, can I get, you know, this rebuild kit or, you know, whatever it is you might need. Um, so definitely wanted to to come up with something where like, you know, in a pinch, someone could go to a bike shop and conceivably piece it together. Um you know, that day not have to actually order anything. Yeah. That's been a, a real source of frustration with number of different brakes. It's just not even that they're like 2021, nothing's in stock. You can't get them right now. There are a bunch of companies that just don't sell replacement parts for brakes really at all. And, uh, that's a bummer. So, um, yeah, cool that they're keeping, spare parts availability solid and doing stuff that you can work with. Um, pretty neat project all around. And uh, I have it right that you're working on some new variants of those too. Is there anything you want to tell us about that yet? Or are we uh, a little early on that one? I mean, it, we, we've kind of prototyped it um, by Jerry rigging some stuff together. We're, we're adapting that caliper to TRP and Shimano levers. Um Currently, we have a strange contraption that allows us to use the uh, Shimano, or not the Shimano, that allows us to use the SRAM banjo fitting with a, a Shimano brake lever. Um, let's just go on the parts bin and find enough things to couple it all together. Um, so so we, we, we've rigged one of those up. With, with we, we you know obviously had to get different seals because it's mineral oil. Um, so we, we know how it, you know, it should work and it's just a matter of machining. You now we're going to go and machine a caliper body now that is specific to, you know, Shimano and TRP banjo fittings where it's just a, a direct swap because you don't want to make people go have to source banjo bolts and, and whatnot. Um, I don't, that's one of those things that to me, it's just, that's the worst if you buy something, but then you actually have to go find like, a, it's only like a, you know, a few dollars, but you have to find this bag of tiny spare parts just to install it. It's like, Oh, why can't that just like come with it or, you know, be compatible with what's already there. And that's not necessarily coming from just the bike world. There are things outside of the bike world that are like that, which actually that, that reminds me another thing with the, the brakes is a, a lot of, uh, a lot of us here have, you know, spent some amount of time in you know, one motorsport world or another. So, uh, sometimes we get some flack for not making brake levers to go with the, the calipers. Um, but like when you look at, you know, cars and whatnot, you, you don't replace the master cylinder unless you have a reason to replace the master cylinder. Um, so you know, since we were able to get the calipers to do what we wanted, just doing the caliper, why, you know, do a lever? It uh, We do have some cool ideas for a brake lever um, that we'll be keeping to ourselves for now. But uh, for the time being, the the brake lever really works fine. Yeah, I agree. You've accomplished what they were set out to do without having to make the whole package. So that seems okay. To kind of round out the current cascade lineup you guys also have some chain guides we i tested the full guide with the bash recently have the full review of that up on the site we'll 
link to that too. Tell us about those. What was the, what were you hoping to solve compared to what's already out there basically with those? What was the goal? Part of that, maybe this is just me being a little uh, picky. Uh, I find a lot of chain guides just look like a front derailleur that has been converted into plastic and then bolted onto your bike. (laughs) And you just couldn't really help but feel like, you know, my trail bike that I like to run a full guide on because I kind of like to thrash it. Um, It just looks like this crazy contraption and it felt like it should be lighter and just simpler and not look like a front derailleur. Um, so you just, yeah, just kind of started working on some concepts for a, a chain guide that, you know, wasn't, wasn't limited by, you know, there's this existing way that people have held chains onto chain rings for decades, just seemingly just because, um, obviously we tested it a fair bit. We tested some versions that looked a little bit like a front derailleur. And obviously some other versions that don't because our current version doesn't look like a front derailleur. Um, And we kind of, we found kind of what we suspected, which is if you make it physically impossible for the chain to come off the top of the chain ring, then you can never lose your chain. um, And you don't actually need a plate holding the side of the chain inboard because it just can't move out there anyway. so that was kind of the, yeah, the, the big thing is they were just like, we can make this, you know, lighter and simpler and, and all just by making the, the chain retention method, you know, some like essentially small plastic guides where your, your chain can't lift more than, you know, a millimeter or two off the, off of the chain ring. And that's like off the bottom of the chain ring. So it, it can never get past the top of the teeth. Um, and that, that just allowed us to simplify so much. And, and then, you know, another thing, which, you know, isn't necessarily for everyone, but, uh, I never changed chain ring sizes. Um, I know a lot of people that never change chain ring sizes. So I know there's some people that do, if you change a chain ring size a lot, I'm sorry. Uh, we decided to have specific plastics for, um, individual chain ring sizes because it, it got rid of a lot of that just overbuilt, you know, slider mechanism that a lot of guides use to adjust chain ring size. Yeah. I mean, the simplicity is a huge part of what I like about it. It's one, you can just bolt the guide on without taking the chain or the crank off or doing anything slides right on the three ISCG bolts done. And it's easier to work on. It is light and simple and, you don't have sliders that come loose and move around and, you know, it's got some limitations in that it, um, basically there's no adjustment for the clocking of the guide on the, the full guide. And so it does require you to have a bike that has, um, I don't know, truly adheres to the ISCG standard rather than having a modified version of it that, uh, a few bikes out there do. But, uh, if your bike works with it, it is just, it's clean and simple and, really easy to deal with and uh and notably light too so they're pretty trick well jimmy thanks for the rundown on these and it's been cool kind of hearing a little bit about the company and how you go about doing things over there and before we let you go we do like to wrap these up by asking the guests if they just happen to have a big idea to share and kind of anything goes with these so we've had everything from 
uh, let's see, a couple weeks ago, Ed Masters was saying that we ought to do mountain bike uh, straight rhythm races, just replicate the moto races or whatever you got. Uh, one thing, you know, it, it's getting towards the end of the winter. One thing I think every single year going into the end of the winter is there should be more sanctioned trails with really big jumps. Um, <laughs> maybe that's just having grown up in Washington. Yeah, it's good building trails for everybody. And I'm glad that there are more sanctioned trails for kind of less experienced, less aggressive riders popping up because frankly, there was a long time around here when it was like most of the riding was just rogue built stuff for people who were charging hard. And that was cool, but made it a little harder to get people involved and get, you know, where do you go learn how to mountain bike if everything's super gnarly? Oh yeah, completely. We, we probably have a bike park opening up this summer, if I'm not mistaken though. So that usually helps. I guess it's going to be limited. Yeah, it's, it's been allegedly about to open for a while now. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. But anyway, back to your actual point though. Um, yeah, building trails for everybody is great and I'm all for it, but that does actually mean everybody. And there's some people who would like to see some big jump lines coming in. So, I mean, the, there are trails in the area like, a you know, blue steel, like visually those things look really big, but they're actually like, as far as, you know, if someone's trying to get into big jumps, it's fantastic um, because they, they're well-built and they flow really well and they are sanctioned and actually safe to ride versus there's definitely some stuff off in the woods around here where if you don't know it goes, you roll up to the thing and you're like, this doesn't make sense. This, this jump doesn't work. And you full, you know, fully believe that until you actually see someone do it. There's a whole spectrum there. We can leave it at that. (laughs) Well, Jimmy, this was super fun. Thanks for coming on and great chatting bikes with you as always. So been a great time. Thanks again. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you're enjoying these conversations, then we'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate the show in Apple Podcasts. I want to say thanks to Jimmy for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.